1: Welcome to episode 14 of the Hilo. Recording on June the 13th, a day that our superstitious mothers would not be very happy about Dolly. God, no, they'd hate it. <laughs> the High Low is a weekly pop culture and news podcast hosted by me, Pandora Sykes, and her, Dolly Alderton. Since last week, it's become clear, as someone helpfully pointed out on Twitter, that contrary to Dolly's assertion last week, we do not yet know who our Prime Minister will be. I know, how
2: presumptuous <laughs> of me.
1: <laughs> how presumptuous of you to assume that it would be a... A clear
2: conclusion. So it's been a nutty old week for politics, hasn't it? Not to be too reductive. Did you predict the hung parliament? No,
1: I didn't, but my best friend did. Um, I've just made a lot of bad puns about being hung over. Um, Very good. But this week I've been mainly reading up on the DUP. A journalist uh, called Anna Hart who's writing, I'm sure you know as well. Yeah. Tweet is something really interesting. Um, Being Northern Irish, I have a long, sorry history of detesting the DUP and their regressive, hate-filled politics. I'm horror-struck. She also says something else which, and I'm paraphrasing because I, I can't actually find it right now as we're talking, it was along the lines of the DUP makes UKIP look mild, which is concerning, but there's actually been some really interesting articles written from both left and right. Um, the columnist Asa Bennett wrote an article for The Telegraph titled the left is demonising the DUP because it will never let Jeremy Corbyn get into power, an interesting one and um, there was another article that I thought was really interesting about how the DUP will, you know, always be seen as toxic because it's faith based and we do Mm. have a real fear
2: of things that are faith-based now. Well, I think quite rightly, because that's not a doctrine that I want my everyday life to be governed by, you know, the God in the sky. So for those of you who are a bit lost with what's going on, here's a quick recap. Theresa May called a general election thinking she could increase her power before Brexit negotiations began. Oh ho ho ho. Uh, she didn't do <laughs> as well as she's anticip- she had anticipated and the Conservatives no longer have a majority. So they, so the Conservatives are still the biggest party in the House of Commons and they've been talking to Northern Irish Party, the Democratic Unionist Party that we mentioned, the DUP, about having its support in key votes. So the Conservatives still have 318 MPs and there are 10 DUP MPs together make up <laughs> making up more than half the MPs in the House of Commons. I think it's important to explain this formula though, because I was very confused about the maths of it when I was watching it. And what I was, was going to happen. I
1: was. Someone said, "Oh yeah, they're joining with the DUP," and I was like, "No, I'm sure you mean the WEP." I just went for another,
2: like, acronym. They were like, no, no, it's DUP. And I was like, I've never fucking heard of them. Um, So there's not going to be a formal coalition, thank God. Um, But they're looking at what's called a confidence and supply agreement. Um, The most worrying thing about the DUP is that it opposes same-sex marriage and is anti-abortion. So it feels like we're taking a huge step backwards in many ways by having them... Uh, as part of our government, it's also really tapping into
1: my Netflix watching at the moment. I'm firstly watching House <laughs> Did of Cards.
2: I'm
1: watching House of Cards, watching the. Uh, everyone who's watching it will also know what I mean about watching all the different states um, flash up for Conway and for Underwood. And it's also making a nice parallel with um, The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs>
2: There we go. That's That's the removal us. the removal of women's rights. That's uh, basic bitching the shit out of political commentary. No,
1: actually, there was an amazing piece that I tweeted on The Handmaid's Tale. Um, that I think Eva Wise. I read that. About, oh, wasn't sorry, it was very good about, the,
2: about actually, violence in The Handmaid's Tale.
1: No, another one. I thought I'd put that up as well, actually. I'll send it to you if I didn't. I think it might be on the Low's Twitter. Um, about another one, which was really interesting. I've read a few along this line being like, The Handmaid's Tale um, actually reminds me of, and then it was kind of Trump... ISIS, something else, something else. Mm-hmm. It was basically about how... The violence thing I thought was interesting, but I actually... Someone tweeted, tweeted us and I replied, sorry, on behalf of us both, saying that I actually didn't think the violence was unnecessary. I think mm-hmm. in a book... So Sorry for anyone that's not watching, but those that are will be, I'm sure, as gripped as we are. But in a book you have that capacity for kind of nuance that you just don't have in telly. I think mm. you have to show things a lot more mm. and I don't, I actually don't think it was too much thought so it was very affecting.
2: No, I mean, it's confronting and it's difficult oh. to watch. I found the oh. last episode particularly difficult to watch. Yes, absolutely. But what, it's a difficult, it's Alexis. a difficult, scary, dystopian thing. That, you know, there's a reason that they're using shock tactics for, to to I'm express so it.
1: So excited. There's another series coming
2: already. Oh, is there? But it's moving beyond Atwood's book. Um. Anyway, I've got it to read this summer and I know
1: awful that I haven't read it yet. And of course, there are mutterings that Jezza is going to replace Diane Abbott with
2: Yvette Cooper, with whom there is no lost love. Lost love? There's
0: lost no love. lost
2: love at all! Did I say in go, the Party. Did I go down to Nabby again? You went lost, lost. Um, which. <laughs> God, I think that means I've outposhed you for God, um, Which. Tweet us if you think Dolly's posher than me. There oh, is... God, we can't go all back to that again. There that is... just coloured all of Pandolly, there who is was a, posher.
1: There is a, strong, a stronghold arguing that it is Hannah Alderton.
2: <laughs> anyway, what have you been up to, Pandora?
1: Just I'm fanning my leotard, I'm a bit hot. Um, so obviously I've been watching House of Cards and The Handmaid's Tale um, and I've also been gearing up for The Return of Orange is the New Black. I am absolutely obsessed, to use your favourite word, with Samira Wiley. Do you know who I mean? She's in The Handmaid's Tale as well. She played Moira. Um, I do uh, Elizabeth Moss's best friend. Oh yes, you know, oh, she's
2: a great actor. She's
1: amazing. She's in Orange is the New Black as well. Oh cool. I oh, know you should watch it. I'm yeah. really obsessed with her. I emailed... Um, some of my commissioning editors this week just just to let you know if you need anyone to interview her I'm
2: here (laughs) no no one's replied Um, there you go that's a public plea to editors of Britain I
1: also um, have been I
2: actually got a saucepan
1: fell on my head just before I left here it's a little bit sore have I got nothing on my back You've got
2: a tiny scratch, yeah.
1: A a huge cut, did you say? Yes, that was from... Because I keep all the saucepans on a hanging thing above my head and one fell on my head and then got my back. So I'm feeling a little out of sorts. Um, No, but I've also rediscovered... Did you ever used to use those um,
2: Biore nose strips when you were a teenager? They are the most satisfying and disgusting things ever. Oh my god, Ollie! For anyone who doesn't know what they are, where have you where have you been living? They unclog your pores, your nose. They take paws. out your blackheads. They're, they're disgusting. Put...
1: So I've never had much luck with them because I'm not humble bragging here. I'm just, I just don't have many blackheads. I get plenty of other ailments, but I don't have many blackheads. You know they're not actually very good for your skin. Anyway, <laughs> I bought some ten pounds for six, and uh, Ollie and I did them together on Monday night joint maintenance and God, he
2: really is a confirmed metrosexual
1: husband, he's never he? done one before hmm. and he was absolutely fascinated oh, it, was like, it was like it's like having a bed of cress afterwards they're all <laughs> they're all prickly i have to say that was none on mine but they were they're all prickly as well they're kind of like little blades of sick, and also he said my nose is no longer like a
2: strawberry it is a grape but they do widen your pause. Make sure he knows that, because I know he'll be concerned about that. He, no, he's absolutely desperate to use more. I had to read him in the back of the packet and
1: say, very seriously, you're only allowed to use them twice a week. So he's already, bookmarked, he's already booked Mark Thursday for strawberry strawberry <laughs> session number two. Um, I'd also like to give a shout out to George and Tilly, who I know are over from Australia and love the podcast, even though Tilly is six months old and I'm not sure if george makes tilly love the podcast or if tilly legitimately likes it in her own tiny right but um hello and thank you for coming back
2: to visit us ollie is so happy you've come to see him Oh, that's nice. I like it when we do shout outs when it goes a bit Capital FM drive time. Dolly, can you tell me about the
1: extraordinary night, which is also known as Instagram gold, where you <laughs> dressed up as a massive packet of cigarettes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why you did that? And also, where did sure. you get the costume from? And what size is it? Can I borrow it? Well, I'm actually looking one to sell it now.
2: All? And my, my uh... That's stupid. You'll regret that. That's what Sabrina said. You'll absolutely regret that. What, what, what use will I ever have for it again? I mean, that's a stupid question. When you next want to dress up as a packet of more lights. <laughs> so basically... Me and my best friends have all. a group of us have all been living together for 5 years in London. We've kind of swapped in and out. Yeah,
1: you told that told a story on Instagram.
2: And <laughs> we're finally we're finally um disbanding next month. So we're kind of going our separate ways and it does really feel like an end of an era so we wanted to mark it properly. So we thought let's have a sort of farewell to flat sharing parties is the wrong word <laughs> gathering. Um and motley I gathering. A Motley gathering so, And I said let's come dressed as an element of our 20s. So I wanted to actually come as a giant bottle of wine, but could I find a fucking costume not for love nor money? Where do you find your cigs? Amazon. How much? Um, How much, Dolly?
1: £35. <laughs> Um,
2: I actually think With next stage, I think that's a bargain. Was that well, one of your like? You most, can't put most a price. Like you can't put, exactly, and you can't put a price on a joke. So how did Paul Farley end up as a sodding Hoover? Because we just felt like there was a Henry. There's always 20s. a Henry Hoover at every shared twenty-something flat you go to, and also Farley loves cleaning, so she came as a giant Henry Hoover. There's a lot of things in giant. Um, someone wanted to come as an IKEA Malm drawer but it it was too labor intensive india came as a bin um with a lot of kind of 20 something items stuck to it like simple Ooh. face wipes <laughs> packets of fags uh double deckers
1: she had some tampons
2: hanging off her no we d- we didn't it felt too mod- it like it felt too performance exactly yeah. <laughs> you um we had our Our friend AJ came dressed as our first ever landlord in Camden, um, who amusingly is a Newsnight presenter, so it wasn't easy, it wasn't hard to find his... uh, General attire online, but the funny thing was, as we went out, so we went back to Camden, and it was all very rites of passage. We went back to our first house that we ever shared, this dump on Queen's Crescent, and we kind of stood outside and all held hands. It was lovely. Um, but what was weird is I was when I was wandering around, it dresses this giant packet of fags. First of all, the cruel irony of the whole thing is that I didn't have a lighter. <laughs> So I kept having to go up to people and it looked like I was doing this like comedy yeah, yeah. sketch. <laughs> and I was like, no, yes, I know it's very funny. I'm a cigarette and I don't have a lighter. Can you give me a lighter? Um, but the other thing is that people kept coming up to me and asking for fags, like free fags. And I think they thought that I was like a promo girl for more Lights. I'm not surprised, Dolly. I would definitely think you were a promo girl. I'd be confused
1: by Henry the Hoover, though, if I saw yeah. him, in, him in close close capacity. We, but- did have to,
2: we did have to change before we went out dancing. We did Your- strip off...
1: Your capacity for nostalgia is like nothing. It's truly unrivaled. I know. You can get nostalgic about a train journey. I
2: you know. You can go
1: back and recreate one iconic. But do you know what? Most of ends, your time is about recreating creations. I, I you had just a, go around
2: in circles. That's all I do. There's, a, what, there's that line from Tom Waits. The restoration plays have all come round. That's my life. Yeah, no. It's, it's just um, lucky
1: that your friends are in the same
2: I mean, I did, have I did have to strong-arm them a bit. It would be a lie to say that it wasn't mainly from me, the whole we have to dress up. <laughs>
1: and, and but then it was very see,
2: fun. you went to see Rod Stewart as well. Yeah, and then I woke up on Sunday morning with an unbelievably horrible hangover. From and, all the
1: cigarettes. And I
2: had to go. I did think I smoked more while dressed as a fag. Um, and I... Got a train to the Isle of Wight Festival for just one night to go see Rod Stewart, who's my favourite singer of all time.
1: Is he your favourite Stewart of, uh, of all time?
2: He's my favourite Stewart of all time. I think he is, yeah, he's my favourite li- like singer who's still alive and I'd never seen him live before. Um, so we went to go see Rod, which was, I know you're going to laugh when I say this, it was like an extremely overwhelming experience. You were hungover? No, it's because I love him so much and I love his music. The band, he was in The Faces is my favourite band. But the problem is is that I often find it quite disappointing when you go see musicians you're obsessed with because... In your head, you have such a personal relationship with them and they're so special to you and their music is so special to you. You assume somehow that they're going to care about you and then when you're in this live environment with thousands of other people and you're just one anonymous face, it's like you feel so close to them but you also feel so far. It's how I used to feel about seeing... You
1: had an emotional weekend, old, didn't you? God, it was
2: a white-knuckle ride of emotions. (laughs) But anyway, he sung all my faves and he was wearing a really sexy little gold suit, so I had a great time watching Rod.
1: (laughs) The Hilo is very happy this week to have the writer Rennie Edo-Lodge appearing on the show. She is our first ever author to appear in our new monthly author special. Dolly and I are basically are obsessed with books, as you may know, and we really wanted to think of a format where we could get someone great whose new book, just released book, because the idea is that you will learn something about a new book to read and the author who wrote it. Uh, we really wanted to come up with a segment where we could facilitate that. Um so Rennie is our first one. She's coming to chat with us for the rest of the show. Both Dolly and I found Rennie's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, which was published on the 1st of June. Really fascinating. We can't wait to talk to her later on in the show, so stay tuned. We've also had a lot of um, emails about our Goodreads page. Lots of people can't find us, and we kept on going, we're at the Hilo show, the Hilo show, thinking what on earth is wrong with these morons? And I'm so sorry, we have actually realised... Well, Morons. We have actually, I'm just saying, <laughs> it like it is I no longer think you're morons because I've now realised that you have to have your own Goodreads account to access our Goodreads page so if you want to see our shelf then um, you've got to set up your own Goodreads account it literally it takes, takes no time at yeah, all yeah it takes ten seconds um, so if you're having any trouble do that and
2: then we can be friends Support for the Hilo comes from one of our favourite brands, NARS, and I'm delighted to have been given some time this week to be positively evangelical about my Beauty Hero product, which is the NARS Duo Eyeshadows, which is a small palette of two eyeshadows. I am quite a recent but now monomaniacal convert to eyeshadow, having spent many years in the... Wilderness of uh, overusage of black coal eyeliner pencil. Um, I've tried a few eyeshadows, but the NARS Duo Compacts are firmly my favourite. The pigment is really strong, so you don't need to have layer upon layer of it for the true colour to show. They have a beautifully fine milled texture. They're really silky and light to apply, and they come in really usable, complementary shades, so you never have to feel guilty about that one garish round of eyeshadow that you get in a palette that always goes untouched. Yes, I'm that much for people pleaser that I really worry about eyeshadow's feelings. Um, I love the Alhambra, I think that's how you say it, duo for a base, which are two light shades. One's kind of peachy, the other one's more golden, and then shading with the Isolde duo on top, uh, one of which is lighter and another one is darker shades of coppery brown, which I think looks really striking with blue eyes. But whatever you're colouring, there are a range of flattering shades to suit you. The £25 and they'll take you half a centimetre closer to looking like a 1960s movie star, which is why I like to wear them anyway.
1: I love copper shades on
2: eyes. It's my
1: favourites, especially mm. on blondes. You're wearing it right I now, aren't you? It's strangely flattering, isn't it? I think it's perfectly normally flattering.
2: There we are. I think it's time for the top line, Pandora. It's my turn this week. Just air my boots before I start. Charlie, our lovely producer, can we have 90 seconds on the clock? Wonder Woman has broken box office records
1: with director Patty Jenkins now holding the record for the biggest US opening by a female director. Previous champion was Fifty Shades of Grey's Sam Taylor-Johnson. Speaking of Sam TJ and Fifty Shades, Sam has given a series of revelatory interviews this week, including one in the Sunday Times where she said she would be mad to direct another film written by E.L. James. I like everyone, she said. I was so confused by E.L. James. There was no synergy. Aldi's Cote de Provence rosé, priced £6, continues to blow up the internet and my mouth brain hangover after being ranked one of the best in the world at the International Wine Challenge. More articles have been written about this rosé than they have Bella Hadid's arse, although this is absolutely unsubstantiated at this juncture. Katy Perry, yes, her again, has made overtures to bury the hatchet with Taylor Swift, potentially signalling the end of pop's biggest modern rival. Re, I love her, she told the Observer, somewhat improbably, on Sunday. Style.com and Farfetch have merged, signalling a new retail superpower set to rival Netaporter.com. Handbags at the ready, ka-ching. Forbes have released their celebrity rich list and P. Diddy clocks in at number one with Beyonce number two and, strangely, curveball, J.K. Rowling at number three. A policewoman has been shot in the head in Munich. The suspect is in life-threatening condition, though still alive. The attacker has been caught and police say it is not terror-related. Liam Gallagher, who called Brother Null a sad fuck for going on a yacht to celebrate his 50th birthday instead of appearing at the One Love charity concert in Manchester, took another swipe on Chris Evans' BBC Breakfast show on Monday, saying that Oasis are done. I'm still going. (laughs) A lot of people think we really get on, but we are not fond of each other, he clarified. Budget airline EasyJet has introduced the private jet experience minus the private jet. I'm obsessed with this. Passengers can pay £475 to use the private jet terminal and facilities at Luton Airport, including use of the luxury lounge and being driven to the plane, £475 wow. pounds for that. The United Nations has ruled that Ireland's abortion laws are cruel and inhumane against women for the second time in 12 months. The Irish Republic currently denies women with fatal fetal abnormalities the right to terminate pregnancies. That's very much in line with what you're saying about the mm.
2: DUP. Do you think we'll ever get it into the 90 second bracket? I don't know if we will. No, maybe we just ditch that. We just I have like the, the countdown line. though. <laughs> also, I like that you worded that in a more camp wave this week I it went like very gawg I just
1: like that J.K. Rowling as well was number three it's like P. Diddy Beyonce JK Rowling I know and also um, that EasyJet thing is fucking bonkers you can pay £475 pounds
2: just to use a lounge and be and be driven to, to the aeroplane and then it all goes it, back to rankness again it is what it is EasyJet isn't it there's no point although I do sometimes spend a bit more on their legroom but that's because I'm 300 metres tall <laughs> also I don't understand why Liam Gallagher is like by the way if anyone thinks that we're mates we're not mates everyone knows they're not mates No, they forged an entire career out of not being mates no but mates. what I
1: love is he's like I think people think we're fond of each other oh, it's and like actually it's he's like yeah. he's a fucking knob <laughs> but it's really funny he's always tweeting about him do you have a look at his twitter but who do you prefer are you noel or are you liam um liam i'm liam because yeah. he's obviously a gobby shit but mm. it sounds like noel's a bit up his own ass mm. you know
2: on a yacht rather than at the one love concert i drove noel in i think it was noel <laughs> it might have be been liam he <laughs> looks older I drove him in, in one of those, um, you know, those what are they called? Where did you drive him? Help I? me out here. You know, I can't drive. I have drive. no idea. You no, know, the golf cart, the caddy things. Oh, okay. that you get in festivals. Where and why? V Festival. Don't want to go into it. That was a bad <laughs> story. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That was insane. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's now time for our first ever author special with Rennie Edo-Lodge, who has now joined us in our studio.
0: Hello, thanks for having me.
2: (laughs) Thank you for coming. Rennie is a 27-year-old writer from London who has written for the New York Times, The Guardian, British Vogue, The Sunday Times and Stylist, where she appeared on the cover and you've written for many more as well. Um, She's also written a book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, published at the beginning of June. So this is based on a 2014 blog post of the same name, which went viral. It has topped the nonfiction list at FOILs and been called essential reading by the Man Booker Prize winner Marlon James. It is destined to become cult, said Red Magazine. A book set to blow apart race relations in this country, wrote Silas. A wake-up call to a nation in denial, wrote the Observer, which is... By All accounts, a bloody brilliant reception, <laughs> Renny. Congratulations, it's very exciting, thank
0: you. Although I've been knocked off uh, the foils non fiction bestseller by The Good Immigrant, which is a book that I also contributed to. So, oh, I'm too sad about <laughs> that. Yeah,
2: <laughs> uh, we also absolutely loved it, but though don't worry, we won't be offended if you don't put that on the, the back,
0: the back <laughs> we'll just, cover. We'll it we, on. Pass we, on loved it, the we loved it. We loved
2: it. Did you
1: expect the book to be received like this?
0: I don't know if I expected much. I was just like, let's see how the the Mm. British public receives it. I thought, you know, it might be divisive, but I don't know. I think uh, I've never really thought too much about the reception of anything that I write. Book deals aren't ten a penny. Mm -hmm. um, And I thought that this subject matter really needed that grounding in historical context. And that was something that I needed to do. It's so easy, I think, to scroll through your timelines and come across anecdotes about American Black history, but I, I needed to make mm. sure that it was absolutely grounded in in what happened here, and so I sort of took trips to the British Library and to the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton, and I and I did that rifling through, and it was it was really rewarding, and mm. I, I learned so much, and I'm so glad I did that, and yeah. I'm really glad that readers are telling me that they they're learning so much about that too. So. Oh
2: God, yeah. Well,
1: yeah,
0: that's yeah, yeah. that's something we, both... we were
2: going to talk about actually, because one of the most fascinating parts of the book was the chapter that's kind of a thorough but condensed history of British civil rights, mm. um, which we, we just don't know about. We just have, we, just we aren't taught. taught. Mm. And there's, there was, you talk about Paul Stevenson in it with the Bristol bus mm. boycott. And it was the only reason I knew of him is I worked at a TV production company quite recently they said to me can you find some stories of civil rights that happened in this country mm. and it was quite hard to find them you know it was that you know those sort of websites where everything is like a geo cities you mm. know it was quite difficult to find to mine and, through and when I went to go follow those stories up with um cuttings agencies a lot of them didn't have a kind of rigorous cuttings of those stories mm. so which immediately kind of proves your Points. Well, it's, history it's, is
0: written by the winners, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. you know, when I was in school, I was being taught about uh, Harriet Tubman and her Underground Railroad, Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, but I didn't know about the Bristol bus boycott, God. which was happening around the same time that Martin Luther King was giving his "I Have a Dream" speech. That wasn't something that I learned about until I worked for a race equality think tank, actually. Um, and I just realised that this complete, absolute, gaping hole in British history is uh, contributing to an environment in which people can go, well, that's not really an issue here, is it? So uh, you've just got a chip on your Ooh. shoulder. Why are you talking about this? And so I knew that the information was out there. It mm-hmm. wasn't going to be served up to me in uh, bite-sized chunks through, yeah. you know, the curriculum, and that was something that I was going to have to go and do the work for myself. Um, and I, and I, I think it. I think it's worked. I think that. People are shocked, which amazes me, because there are still people in living history who have lived through these, (laughs) living memory, who who exist today, who are still alive, who absolutely lived through this. But there's been some sort of collective amnesia, some some whitewashing. And if if I was a conspiracy theorist, I would think that there was some kind of cover-up going on. But I don't know. I think it's just more, you know, history is written by the winners. The narrative of today continues to be written by the people who are benefiting from that. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a massive shame. And I must say, I I was particularly particularly by um stories of the
2: of the British police force mm. um and how important do you think it is for british children to have this understanding and context of of civil rights movement and racism systemic racism within their country
0: well i think that if you consider yourself somebody who is committed to living in this country and making your life here then we should all we all have a responsibility to make it better and that is um something that's not going to happen if we're not honest about what this country has been Um, for so long. There's been an understanding of the police as a benign force that's always there to help. But I knew anecdotally, um, you know, because I grew up around Tottenham, so I knew anecdotally... People were telling me in the spaces around me that um, the police had been aggravating factors. And I grew up very close to Broadwater Farm Estate, which is basically where P.C. Blakelock um, was killed in in riots in the late 80s. And so that was something that was very present in my mind and my family's mind and the wider community's mind. Um, And that was something that also I think is is quite canonised in British history, in British recent history. And it was disgusting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not excusing the death of a police officer by any means, but... What isn't canonised is the low level hum of police harassment that led to that moment. Absolutely. And that's something that I thought that was very important to document Mm. Um, because we we don't know about it. And and that the people who were telling me anecdotally didn't have access to uh, write books, you know, Mm. didn't have access to um, put forward their version of history. Not at all because of institutional racism. <laughs> so mm. I felt that that was, that was my duty to bring those stories back to life. Mm.
1: Let's state the obvious before some smart ass does via Twitter. Despite mm. the title, obviously, here you are talking to two white girls. But what you're saying is not, I will not have that conversation with anyone who's white. Essentially, mm. what we took to mean by the book is, I don't want to have a conversation where I am explaining what it is to be a black woman, why I'm explaining race to white people. Can mm. you expand a little bit more about that? Because I think what's so amazing about the book is that it's it's a it's a strong title. It's mm. as you've said, you know, I thought it might be divisive because it's a, a necessarily provocative title. Mm. It would be great to hear a little bit about kind of why the title
0: actually was so important to you. Well it's named the exact same name as the opening essay, which went viral back in 2014 and when I wrote that I was deadly serious. I was not having that conversation. That wasn't me attempting to be provocative. You know, I'm not doing a Milo Yiannopoulos here just trying to get attention. That was me being completely emotionally exhausted of having those conversations um, from people who were from a completely different starting point, who... Um, I was trying to have the conversation about nuances of a problem with people who didn't recognise there was a problem. And mm-hmm. so that was absolutely me withdrawing, setting a boundary and saying, no, I am not doing this anymore because there was a context in my brain and there wasn't a context in their brain. And I hope that when people have read the book, they can sort of understand why I had come to that conclusion, because, oh, my God, it's frustrating. And you said it wasn't for, for lack of trying. Well, absolutely. Sometimes I meet people who tell me, oh, my God, since I've read your book. I've had four arguments. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what that's telling me is that they are experiencing that extreme frustration, yeah. that willful ignorance and that wholesale denial mm. from people who feel super-duper confident to opine about this with very little knowledge of it at all. Mm. Um, you know, But since I wrote that post, the conversations improved dramatically. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely was withdrawing from the ring, but the conversations improved dramatically. And then I think in hindsight... What I was saying there was I'm not rushing to assimilate to a very biased agenda anymore. I'm Mm -hmm. simply not doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, We have it from this place or we don't have it at all. And, And I think hopefully the book is achieving that. Um, you
1: wrote a, a very interesting piece. Was it for Grazia, where you said, you know, of course I would have to talk to white people about this book. Mm. You were like, uh, you know, publishers, publicists, mm. other journalists, radio shows. Mm. Um, I mean, you it's said a predominantly white industry. Exactly. Well. Mm. So I think it's really interesting that you have said that conversation has improved dramatically even since mm. 2014. Um, I'd like to think that's quite promising that it's a conversation that you're maybe, albeit trepidatiously, not sure that's a
0: word, (laughs) entering into, but on your own terms, as Mm. you say. Yeah, absolutely. That was utterly clear. And what's interesting, you know, I've been doing publicity for this book for the last few weeks now is, is sometimes in speaking to white journalists, there has been a suspension of logic, some facetiousness in which they go, well, haha, you are talking to me. And I'm like, Yes, but you know that your industry is like ninety percent white. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, why would I not be speaking to yeah. you? You're not exactly the exception to the rule here. But also here's here's the problem in action. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Or and on the flip side, you know, while doing events, I've done quite, I've done about half a dozen events for the book in the last two weeks. I'm getting people of color standing up at events and asking, "How did you get this published? How did you get this published?" And the truth is, when I first met Bloomsbury, who are my publisher, um, you know, they brought out the big guns. They brought every single interesting and influential person in their publishing house to meet me because they were impressed by the proposal. That's awesome. And one of the things they said to me was, well, how do you feel about the fact that, you know, we're interested in your book, but where or why? And again, I said well, you're not the exception, are you? You're the rule. <laughs> but as you,
1: as you pointed out, which I think is a really important point to make, definitely for anyone that hasn't read the book, is this is not you pointing at the, an, an individual white person. So in mm. this scenario, me or Dolly going, I don't want to talk about race. It was you talking about whiteness as a collective mm. and saying that it was a, a kind of conversation that you didn't want to have culturally, mm. rather than there's this amazing line in the book where you said, "What I did not expect when writing... That blog post is that I was essentially writing like a breakup letter mm-hmm. to whiteness, and I didn't know I get the internet equivalent of someone standing
0: with a boombox and a bunch of flowers outside mm-hmm. my window. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I was talking about is a dominant ideology here, mm-hmm. and what I like clearly wanted to do with this book was decenter that dominant ideology. And for those people who are very upset that it's decentered, that whiteness is decentered, well, lucky you—you've got the rest of the bookshop to cater to you in that totally. in that regard, you know. Hundreds of thousands of books by white people are published every year. In fact, the vast majority in Britain. So, if you're extremely upset with what I've written, don't worry. Um, culture will comfort you in that respect. <laughs> um, but I, I think I need to be absolutely clear, and I, and also I still don't think there's anything particularly controversial about the title apart from the the words white people, and because white people are not used to being raced They're or used point, to being the default. Yeah, absolutely. They? That yeah. upsets them very much, and and I hope that that makes a point. I hope that. I do think that white readers are intelligent and reflective enough to recognize that um some of the what I'm doing in this book is absolutely flipping um the dominant ideologies of yeah. race that are usually burdened on people of colour to white people. Oh, actually, it's not nice to be um, homogenised in this way, is it? Yeah, now you see what I'm talking about. Do you know what I mean? We both found it really
1: interesting that notion of um, colour blindness, the idea mm. that white children being brought up not to see themselves as white, you know, that whole idea of like race doesn't matter, be friends with anyone, whatever their race, actually isn't helpful. Mm. Because if white children are not raised to see that they're white, then. they're not seeing, as you say, that they're part of the
2: conversation rather than being default, that was confronting for me to read about colour blindness because it's definitely something I've been guilty of I've definitely Mm. been one of those liberal people who does a sort of wishful thinking fake virtue signaling of saying oh well I don't I don't see colour that's Mm. that's not I'm not racist I haven't noticed noticed." and that does nothing to progress the conversation Mm. or solve the problem to solve the problem Mm. exactly all it does is make me feel good about myself because Mm.
1: as you were saying it's there's children not seeing race in that kind of you know quite disingenuous way and then at the same time there's black children being told that they have to supersede their blackness that they have to work two or three times harder so Mm. you've got
0: that inequality just in education right from the very genus. Mm. And, you know, the the problems with the institutional bias and, you know, there's stats I cite in the book from very reputable agencies like the Department for Work and Pensions and the Department for Education and the Census. So not exactly biased organisations here, you know, telling us that you know, a black boy is three times as likely as his, uh, the rest of his school population to be excluded from school. That if you have an African or Asian sounding name, you're far less likely to be called to interview than somebody with a white British name with identical uh, qualifications and experience. And what I'm not saying there is that, you know, schools are staffed by out and out racists. And what I'm not saying is that um, private organizations hiring are staffed by people wearing KKK hoods. I'm sure. Not only are those organisations staffed by people of all races, but all of those people are going to be going, well, I haven't got a racist bone in my body. Mm. Um, Yet the bias Mm. persists. So so clearly we need a bit more of a sophisticated conversation about how this bias continues to be reproduced. And it's not good enough to just be like, well, I'm a good person and so... I'm not racist and I'm not participating in this, because we are all in and of that system and yes. we should be honest about that. The first time someone
2: confronted me with that, I found very difficult, was a, a white author, actually. We were sitting around a group of us that was all white people and she said, I think everyone here is racist. And I immediately <laughs> clutched my pearls and said, how dare you? know hmm. I'm not. And she said, I think you would feel differently if a group of young black men walked past you at night than a group of young white men. Mm. said. So I think you're lying if you say you wouldn't and I think you're trying to make yourself look better and I think it's not going to solve the
0: problem unless we unpick why the fuck that has happened in all of our heads. Mm, absolutely. Thus far, the conversation about racism has reached a point where we believe that racists are bad people and if you're a good person, then of course you can't be racist. Again, really juvenile like, like playground yeah. understanding of racism and, and in me saying that it's not as simple as good and bad people, and that people that you love can be racist you almost certainly have racist bias in yourself that's not me going oh well actually good people can be racist so uh, let's not forget actually it's fine like racism everybody's got it so let's just not bother about it that's not me <laughs> that's not me saying that although i can certainly see how it can be interpreted as such it's me saying this is all encompassing this is all encompassing it's not let's, binary
1: let's not be dramatic about it mm. Let, you know let's not as you say assume that it's only evil people that have it let's say well this is it just like it's not okay mm. it's it's equally endemic and so let's kind of be calm and measured and thoughtful and and, open up that and and talk about this yes something that I definitely learn and will be trotting out I'm probably going to be quoting you for the next five years of my life (laughs) is where you said the difference between prejudice and racism so you told this great story about when you were buying yourself some lunch Mm. and the black man behind the counter served some white customers and then they left and he said to you I've saved the best bits of meat for us or something like that. Like the deli counter, I've saved the best bits for us. And you said, you know, you were using it as a way to describe how reverse racism is not a thing because there has to be power in the dynamic. So you were saying Mm. the the deli man saving his best meat for me, was it prejudiced? Sure. Was he being prejudiced as a black man against his white customers? Yes. But was it racist? No, because there was no power in that. He wasn't going to change any important part of their day because he doesn 't have
2: the power to because he doesn't he doesn't have the, he doesn't
1: have the power all he had the power to do is to give you know me a slightly nicer lunch than mm. than them and I thought that was such you 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 described that honestly in a way that I mean, i 'm thirty and it had never been mm. to me i was out so I was saying
0: that to everyone after I read that passage mm. I was reading it aloud to them and how was that received very well The Guardian um reported on the British social attitude survey in two thousand and fourteen they found that the people most likely to admit that they had some racism in them were white men highly educated between the ages of like 35 and 60 and earning a lot of money. So what does that mean if there's a white man who's basically middle-aged earning a lot of money? It means that he's in a position to negatively affect people's life chances. It means that he's probably a CEO. Mm -hmm. He may be a landlord. Um, These are all situations in which you know, you need to rely on that person's approval to, to find housing, to get a job, all things that we need to do to get by in life. Um, and this is where the racial prejudice really becomes a systemic problem. Um, I don't think in this book I am posing solutions about how to eliminate racial prejudice or tribalism, which um, are absolutely endemic in society. But it's about being honest about where power lies in order for that mm. prejudice to really take hold and affect people's life chances. And that absolutely leads into that systemic and structural bias that is creating so many problems that lead to the more current conversations about representation i don't think we can have that conversation about representation without talking about the supply chain and that's what i'm talking about Well, that's something
1: that, that dolly and i speak a lot of in in favor of shortlists and quotas and you know representation you write very well on the importance of this and there was Something that Dolly, I think, wants to read from page 73 for our listeners about the Rooney rule in American football so the Rooney
2: rule in American football I'll just quote you back to you if that's okay (laughs) go ahead you said uh, the Rooney rule worked through a rather mild method of opening up opportunities for people of colour when a senior coaching or operations position became available teams were required to interview at least one black or minority ethnic person for the job this was a shortlist requirement only teams were under no obligation to hire said person around the time of the rule's 10th birthday its success in the US led to the idea being floated in British football Despite its utterly inoffensive nature, the idea of implementing the Rooney rule in British football sent the nation into a spin. Chairman of Blackpool FC Carl Oyston called it tokenism and an absolute insult to people in the sport. Carlisle United manager Keith Curl essentially called it a box ticking exercise the way it was spoken about, you'd think the FA's plans weren't suggesting having one person of colour on an interview shortlist, but instead were asking team heads to walk into their local supermarket and offer their most high-level jobs to the first random black person they saw in the vegetable aisle. So this, I loved I, that passage. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: And this idea of um, platforming, it, it can be quite a divisive topic that, you know, with some people uh, saying that it can be mere tokenism and it's patronising. Do you believe in the power of platforming as
0: representation. Well I know I wouldn't be here now if I hadn't benefited from a positive discrimination scheme that's literally the honest answer that yeah, I have to that. Yeah you write about that yeah. don't you in your um, you know I believe in the best in people even though sometimes I'm faced with overwhelming evidence to say op- the opposite right <laughs> um, I think that people are putting forward their opposition to that based on a completely skewed understanding of what this lay of the land looks like when it comes to race and power in this country which is why I'm te- I'm attempting to change that in this book. But I think, given the context um, that I sort of lay out in the book of, of racial bias, institutional bias, and um, the negative effects on life chances, sometimes you can't see that opposition as anything other than keeping the industry white. Mm. You know, there's this willful ignorance and denial of the problem and uh, insistence that we don't need to change anything. And that can feel very frustrating, actually. That can feel absolutely disheartening. They might think, oh, no, this is about fairness. This is about fairness. But actually, the lay of the land is currently unfair. And if this is about fairness and merit, then why is everybody succeeding currently white? Are you telling me mm-hmm. that only white mm-hmm. people are of merit? And I, I just don't believe that's the case. I really mm-hmm. don't. And so it's about trying to stay optimistic and thinking, OK, there are other reasons why they're saying this and not just that they're dedicated to keeping their sector completely white.
1: I feel like we could talk to you about this for hours and hold you hostage in this hot little studio of ours. But unfortunately, we do have to um, wrap up the segment. But before we go, Dolly, last Yeah, thoughts. I'm going
2: to be one of those awful, earnest white people <laughs> you oh talk goodness. about in that final chapter um, and ask the question that has probably been posed to you a million times, which is what can we do as white people to help end racism? Because I know something that you say in that final chapter that really struck a chord is is you said there's no point white people wallowing in guilt and (laughs) self-flagellation because that does absolutely nothing in terms of progression. So what would you say, what advice would you give?
0: Well, um, I don't know where you hold influence in your life. I don't know your friends, I don't know the extent of your jobs, I don't know where you can assess where the institutional racism is um really taking hold in your sector and w- what you as individuals can attempt to do to change that and so I'm in no position to tell you how you in both of your lives can attempt to try and change the problem um you know I've been I've spent many many years thinking about this and fewer years writing about it and I think that I've done a decent job of uh, assessing the problem but in terms of where you hold influence in your lives in order to attempt to overcome the problem only you can uh, diagnose that an example speaking to some friends who have set up a small feminist press and um, they're very irritated about the fact that um white male authors are the ones who are so often canonized and they're wanting to publish under celebrated um black and and queer authors and sometimes black queer authors. And in that, they're finding that none of their books are published in Britain. How can somebody become canonised? How can people write their PhDs on Audre Lorde, for example, if you can't get hold of her books in Britain? And so they are taking the lay of the land and they're buying the rights from obscure universities in the depths of somewhere in America in order to make that happen. Now, if they ask me at an event, what can I do? And I don't know their jobs. I can't say, well, you need to think about your role as people who have loads of understanding about publishing and, mm. and look at who your industry is elevating and then thinking about how you can improve that situation because I wouldn't know anything about that in terms of how they are, in, in terms of where they hold their influence and where their expertise is. So only you know in that respect. And and I suppose in terms of that what we can do question, I I don't like it because... Mm. It brings I, you back to... Well, the responsibility is a, on you. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And go and buy de- Renny's book. It's sixteen ninety
1: nine, and um, the more you buy, the better it is for Renny's sales. So you know you can go read, learn, and uh, help make her book a massive success. And have um, the
0: arguments that I don't want to have. <laughs>
2: A joyous news story that will be a trip down memory lane for many. Nokia has re-released its classic 3310 phone that has been updated but has all the features of the classic model, which means you will get Snake and a phone battery that actually lasts an entire month on standby. So it's 49 99 and it has already run out of stock. So, do we think this is a, t- a sign of the times? Do we see this taking off? Have we reached peak smartphone?
1: I'm so excited by this. way more excited than you sounded when you said it means you have Snake and a phone that lasts for standby. On my- um, this isn't just a trip down memory lane for me. It's a complete like plunge into nostalgia. I remember getting my Nokia 3310 with... This, like, an almost sort of visceral memory. I remember getting my faux Burberry phone cover, which I wish I still had. It would probably be really trendy now, all that kind of logo mania is coming back. I remember taking my phone to Tenerife, age 14, and it lasting an entire week. Oh, so I lucky. only got one text, though, which just reminds me of a time when texts and emails were, like, genuinely exciting to get and not, like, a pit of
2: doom Hell. and
0: obligation. Oh, a
2: life before WhatsApp groups. Can you imagine that?
0: Did you have a Nokia 3310? I did, yes. I used to take it on the bus to school. I did, did you play Snake? Yeah, I did, actually. I did, in the playground, absolutely. I mean, I welcome it, and I, I'm sort of thinking about getting one, but obviously it's all out of stock now. There's all the too hipsters you much... beaten. Yeah, there's too much to do on smartphones. It's like... I oh, do too much. I do think Get it to call on them.
2: <laughs> I do think it flatters to deceive, though, because this Nokia—it's not really like the thirty-three ten because it has. Oh no, why? Well, it has internet and it has a camera, which is the right. opposite. Because I agree with you. Mm. I really yearn for a time where my phone is literally a device for for communicating with people, and mm. that's it. You know, to not have a WhatsApp a WhatsApp group created every single day. Your WhatsApp day. groups are like the WhatsApp groups from hell, though. But when it's like someone saying, "Shall we go out for dinner? And it's three people in a new WhatsApp group, and I mean, it takes we're thirty-eight too messages. Contactable, I think, <laughs> mm. and it does. And also, I think it stops us. We talk about this a lot. It stops you from ingesting proper content because it's just too easy but, to and you, scroll. But you
1: don't long to hear from your friends anymore. I remember, God, particularly when you were flirting with someone, when texts would come in. Like especially for me, who used to write texts as if they were like long form poetry. And when texts would come in like six different parts, and you get one of six, two of six, and then like three of six would never arrive, and you'd be in an absolute turmoil, wondering if you could go. I'm very sorry, but could you remind me what three of six might have said? Mm. Or when you were sending like seven part messages and five of seven never arrived and you'd never know on what basis their reply was, because you didn't know what it got like lost into the ether. There's something but, quite romantic about that. It is though. but I would also like to point out, and this is not romantic, that I have actually beat Snake. I did beat Snake once. Wow. Did How you ever do, you do that?
0: that? Basically ends
1: up eating its own self. Wow. There's there's nothing left in the screen. It's
2: kind of like Greek mythology—the head and the head and the bottom <laughs> to sort of become united. Did you have any um, strange phone cases? Did you ever do swapping of phone covers?
0: No, I didn't. But what I remember—this wasn't a thirty-three ten. This was a, a little bit more advanced. I got this phone in year ten. Uh, polyphonic ringtones. Do you remember those? Yes. And you had to like literally buy them. I it, did. I bought. <laughs> to buy them. I, I bought yeah. the
1: Crazy Frog, Charlie. Maybe you could insert some Crazy Frog now, so people can remember it. <laughs> And I didn't realise that I'd been buying it for like months afterwards, and my brother had to call up some incredibly like opaque company because I've been paying like fourteen ninety nine a month for like wow. you know that a ring ding 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 <laughs> yeah. ding ding de, ding yeah, yeah. ding dig, ding de, ding de, dingんだ, de, ding. Oh my god! I think it almost
0: made my <laughs> family break up. Wow! I remember downloading. um, I remember buying 50 cents in the club. Oh my God, I uh... learned all the words to that, off by heart. <laughs> and also the Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, theme tune uh, on polyphonic. And then I took it into school and I played it and we danced to it in the classroom and we had a great time. I just a used really to good prank cool people on my Nokia
1: 3310 as well. I used to prank cool boys and play um, You Can Be My Hero by Enrique Iglesias. How did that phone? work out for you? I don't know. I just play it and I, I wouldn't be able, to <laughs> be able to hear what they
2: but I also like with the thirty-three text you had to be really creative with your fun, like buying polyphonic ringtones. You know, we had, we would do, um, we would send texts to each other that were made up of like full stops and dashes mm. so that it would all be Boops. like pictures. And...
1: How often as well did you used to, no one does this anymore, it's so boring, change your number in someone's phone? Like we used to use all the time. So change, change my name on someone's phone to like a boy they fancied, and then you'd prank. You ba- basically all I did was prank my friends, prank people who weren't my friends, <laughs> prank, prank people well. who I didn't like. Prank literally just like. Years of just pranking. I mean, I was at boarding school. There was really nothing else to do except
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> things that so play on your Nokia 3310s. Things got 10. quite political with our 3310s because people would write notes on each other's covers in Tippex. Right. I'd be
1: furious if someone did my book No, like it was that. a
2: mark of sort of how popular you were. And people used to do it on their school bags as well. Did you have lots? No, I didn't, sadly. <laughs>
1: It's that time of year again Brits peeing on the streets Lovely, what a (laughs) glorious sentence that is So this week's um, piss shaming Comes via Lottie Moss The 19 year old model and half sister of Kate Moss She made tabloid headlines this week When she was photographed Weeing in Ibiza After a boozy night out Actually not after a boozy night out Midway, during a boozy night out I feel quite sorry for her. My God, yeah, it's such an unedifying pose to be caught in. And like whenever you see a picture of someone caught peeing somewhere, they shouldn't. They always have those rabbit caught in headlights mm. eyes. You know when you're that person and you try and curtail the pee, but you can't when you're like mid-pee. I feel like boys can stop and start, but I cannot. Once I'm in like full flow, I can't start. And so you're in a panic and the pee is kind of careering all over your feet and it's just it's just going horribly wrong. Anyway, so people are obviously scandalised by Lottie being caught doing this and it keys into that whole kind of booze Britain culture where we're told that it's really unladylike and we're very familiar with this um, what do you make of it dare I ask if either of you have ever urinated in public
2: I'll let you go first. oh, for oh my that god
0: silence like... <laughs> both of you <laughs> that is our come on you got to reclean, right, well, reclaim yeah this. I definitely have I definitely <laughs> have um but I have a pretty weak bladder I'm, not, I'm just glad that I wasn't famous when I was 19, because... Uh, so you wouldn't want to be caught peeing
1: now? Yeah, I don't go Dolly out... Dolly and I will be following you tonight.
0: <laughs> I don't go out, out enough to... I love that phrase, need to, Yeah, up. I don't go out, out enough to, like, um, need to pee in the street. I just don't, don't go that hard anymore. But I just feel sorry <laughs> for her, because I just feel like, leave her be. Men do it all the time. Precisely. It's you know? so
1: gendered, isn't it? Dolly, what about you? Are you a street pisser?
2: Well, I, when I used to go... Out, out, a lot. It was something that would happen because the, the horrible cruelty of a, of a night out is that you're ingesting so much liquid mm. and yet you're normally in places that have very ill-equipped lavatory facilities. Absolutely. Um, but me and my friends used to do it I am quite ashamed to say this. <laughs> My friends used to do it quite a lot and we really enjoyed doing it. We'd do it like together, we'd all like sort of crouch. It's a hobby. <laughs> well, I think we felt, and this kind of keyed into a, a bigger thing that we felt when we were young, when we were going out, I think we were charged with quite an aggressive energy because we felt like well if if guys are doing it why why should we feel ashamed of doing Mm. it why are we told to use our bodies in a certain way and they can use it so you're you're no better than those men i hate seeing men in broad daylight
1: 20 meters away from a lavatory facility pissing up the wall because i definitely have peed in i'd like to say it was just you know symbolic of my youth but it wasn't i definitely have peed on streets i've done it in the last Three months, and I will probably do it in the next three months. But like you said, wow. I, I I have a real I mean, me. I think me and Rennie were talking like
2: ten years ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, but this is a had better to do social it. life than I me, have to do so. it when I okay,
1: I, had to, I remember I had to do it when I was in New York for work, and I don't know New York at all. And I was covering Fashion Week, and I had to go from one show to the other. There's no time even to get water or food. I didn't have any phone back I remember thinking I have got to go to the loo behind this you car, did it on your own. Or I will Yeah. That's quite punk of you. I mean, absolutely. But so that's what annoys me when you see when you do see, and sorry to get all kind of gender on this, but when you do see guys being like, Oh, me next, me next, and you're like, There's a KFC right there. Mm. I I wouldn't do it like the dolly of your where it's like, We're gonna reclaim public peeing is something women can do as well. There's this wonderful French fashion designer which um, many of you will be familiar with called Isabel Morant. And I went to a dinner of hers once, I think it's about three years ago. And I was talking to her husband and they were saying that they'd looked to buy a house in LA because her brand is doing very well and she was looking to you know, move in, move to America and I was like well why didn't that happen and he said that um, they looked around this amazing house in LA and that Isabel had suddenly realised that she needed to pee and she was like Jerome I will just go onto the streets I will pee there it's fine uh, being very European obviously and um, he was like no 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 you cannot do that in America because obviously they're much more like um, uh, PC there about stuff like that you can imagine
0: they don't even like to use the word toilet yeah much. And she was like,
1: exactly, so there was no bathroom. And she was like, um, well, Jerome, we cannot move here. If I cannot pee, I cannot be. And that is literally the reason why they didn't move to LA. And, and that's absolutely... the reason I
2: always want to be French.
1: <laughs> and I just absolutely, absolutely love that. But yeah, I mean, I suppose none of it's very aspirational. I wouldn't like, I wouldn't aspire to
2: pee on my feet. Well, I think it's more just about appropriate isn't it and about you know it's not about being I I loathe the term ladylike or unladylike I think it's more just about being boundaried you know and thinking about you know (laughs) that in general there's a place Mm. for that exactly exactly there was for a time our our friend Sophie Wilkerson who's a journalist bulk
0: bought she-wees I I have used those at festivals yeah They don't work, though, do they? I mean, I think they work fine. I did have a disaster with one, actually. Last year's Glastonbury, they give you one and they give you a bit of tissue inside it to, um, like, wipe (laughs) yourself afterwards. And I basically went... But forgot to remove the tissue and the wee went everywhere. It was pretty, and just, pretty had, terrible. And yeah. you couldn't, you could You might well have just that's squatted the, freely. But that's I the know. worst
1: thing about free weeing. I do know lots of people who quite enjoy when they're going on like long rambling hikes or walks in the country about the idea of you know free weeing in the hills. And there's free nothing, wee. there is nothing wrong with a free wee when you're in the middle of like a forest. Like that's going to be fine. But the thing I don't understand about a free wee is that you are then moist for the rest of your ramble. My takeaway from this conversation that I think you should all uh, really refer back to is Dolly's soundbite, the cruelty of a night out. <laughs> it is. It's hard out there, isn't it? It is.
0: <laughs> Grueling.
2: Thank you so much for coming in and talking to us, Rennie. Just to say again, we absolutely
0: loved your book. Thank you. Where can we find you online, on social media? The primary place is Twitter, even though I don't use it that much. So that is my name twice, Rennie Rennie. R-E-N-I, R-E-N-I. Find me on there. Although at the moment, I'm just retweeting compliments about the book. So. Totally fine. Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> your race on deck trip with your um, first book. On Instagram, I set that up recently, um, Rennie Edo Lodge, all one word. Um, Easy. Join me on Instagram because it's pretty new for me in terms of work stuff. Like, I've had it personally for a while, but I just... Shared pictures of like food and plants. So (laughs) this is me trying to like use it properly. And then um I have a website, RennieEdoLodge.co.uk. It's pretty dormant, but check it out. Because of course you
1: write for lots of other people. I loved. I know you said recently on our friend Emma Gannon's podcast, Control Out Delete, that you were like, I just kind of got to a point where I didn't want to be doing these like pop culture hot takes anymore mm. but I actually discovered your writing and emailed your publisher immediately to ask for an advanced copy of your book from reading a brilliant piece that you wrote for Vogue about Emma Watson and Nicki Minaj and the kind of um social sanctions uh placed on a white woman's body versus a mm. black woman's body so actually you might not like writing it but I very much like you writing them okay, so well, keep doing it and I'll, I'll read them on doing your website. it for you <laughs> <laughs> do you have any readings live events
0: so they're always happening Intermittently, I'm sharing them on uh, Instagram and Twitter as well. So just pay attention. They're setting out quite quickly, though. But just pay attention. I think the next batch are coming up um, July, August, and also the autumn.
1: Great. And cool. what's next for you? Are you having any downtime, or are you straight into? another book or is it a secret project
0: well this book has been a long time coming like many many years i don't want to force anything so downtime is what's immediately next and you may never hear from me again i will have just become too relaxed i'll be completely horizontal Uh, let's hope not and you can
1: enjoy the summer now it's a good time good time to finish forward to doing that yeah thank you very much ready It's now time for Ask the Hilo, a section that we always wish were longer, but is constrained by our own waffling. Dolly, it's a meaty one this week. Take it away.
2: Dear Dolly and Pandora, my flatmate raves about your podcast and upon hearing my dilemma suggested I turn to you guys to help me out. I'm in a moral conundrum and I'm not sure how to go forward. One of my best friends has had a difficult year which basically revolves around her having a secret baby. The child was adopted and integrated into a new family last month. She had to put her studies on hold, move back to our hometown and she was really getting it in the ear from her mum who, from what I heard, was not particularly supportive during the whole episode. She only told one of our friends but this one friend then told a few others who told a few others. Now we basically all know much to her ignorance. So the nitty-gritty of the pregnancy and adoption are behind her. It's obviously still a raw issue. She appears to be returning to normality and it's tempting to think that it's all over, but I still harbour this lingering guilt that she has no idea that any of us know. It seems unfair, like we're lying to her. Part of me wants to tell her because I think it could be nice for her to know that we know and pass no judgement. I'm only interested in knowing she's okay and that we're there for her if she needs anything. But because she's never told us, I have no idea if she's okay and where she's at with it. We've recently been out together a few times and the night nights have ended with her shouting at everyone crying insulting strangers and just generally not being herself what to do should i tell her
1: my god i just i so feel for this girl mm. um it's really interesting actually because being the nosy old journalist that i am i'm really interested by the details you don't say her age you don't say mm. if she if you'd heard if she wanted to give it up for adoption although i mean it's not particularly relevant but i'm I'm just very interested in this whole idea of a secret baby because it sounds so antiquated and archaic yeah. you don't kind of imagine stuff like this still happens um i mean i'm not surprised at all that she's not being herself that she's crying insulting strangers um after going through that i'm really torn on this because part of me thinks why couldn't that friend that she told just keep it to herself no. it was not her story to pass on i really hate to like gender generalize or be engendered about this um But I do find that it's something that women tend to do more than men, is, you know, oh, I know I shouldn't be telling you this, but... And this is obviously a particularly large story. However on one hand, you could say that it's quite good that that friend didn't keep it for herself because the kind of capacity for understanding and forgiveness of this girl as she is acting not like herself or lashes out at Mm. friends is is going to be inherently more Mm, um, more sympathetic. Um, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? I'm a massive believer in honesty, as you know, but I've also definitely in the last few years had to learn... To combine that with
2: tact and a lot to more. respect people's <sighs> privacy and pride as well, you know. I, I, just if it was me, I probably would tell her. But I, I think it's essential that she tells her, but I think that there's a way in which you can do it that's However, sensitive and
1: delicate. She might by telling her that friend might then lose this this girl who had the baby forever because if you found out, if if if, if you said to me, I know this, and I said, How do you know? And you'll have gone well. Bert told me, and you know. Bert was told by Claire and she basically traces it back to that one friend she trusted that could mean that she could refuse to be friends with that friend but I
2: would say that what is more pressing now is not the feelings of the girl who went and blabbed this very serious problem to everyone no 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 no
1: no no. I don't mean that I'm not talking about the feelings of the girl who blabbed I'm saying that the girl when she's already feeling vulnerable could feel like she has lost the friendship and trust of that one person that she told who is clearly the most important friend in her life that's what I'm saying is that it would make it could potentially make her feel even more isolated
2: but I think that it's more important that she feels like this girl who's written in is obviously a very supportive compassionate non-judgmental person and I would by the sounds of your email I would love to have you as a best friend on my side with whatever life threw at me. And, you know, there's this phrase that I return to all the time that they say in AA, which is, you're as sick as your secrets. And her displacing much of her longing or sadness or frustration or guilt or whatever she's feeling, I can't imagine what that poor woman is feeling. The fact that she's displacing that onto lashing out and getting drunk and nights out, that lashing out isn't coming from the sadness of what's happened, it's coming from the fact she has no language for it to talk to people.
1: But there's a, I think there's an equally strong argument that could say that she's been drunk enough to have, if she wanted to blab this secret of her own, she could have. And this friend who's written to us, if she says, I know about this, you know, that friend could go, I didn't want any of you to know. And if I'd wanted you to know, I would have told you. And I don't want to talk about it. And now you've told me, you will know. It's made me feel I Z. I I don't you know. Some people say that she might latently know that all her friends know, but she'd rather not talk about it. And there is there is an argument that telling people alleviates your own guilt in knowing something that you maybe shouldn't know.
2: And is that gonna help? I just think the embarrassment that I would feel to know that all my friends had been talking about something this serious and they knew I was behaving in a certain way. If I were you, if I were the friend who's written in... Still kindness,
1: though. If she says in years, you know that this happened, did you know? And she goes, yes, we knew. We just wanted to be there to love you and we knew you'd tell us when time was right.
2: I think there's a way of giving her an opportunity to talk about it without cornering her and going, by the way, I know everything. I think that it sounds like she's not having a great time. She seems very stressed. I would maybe, like, take her away for the night. I'll often do that if a friend's having a bad time. Like, maybe take her to the seaside or, like, take her on a nice day trip. to Be just the two of you, have some long walks, have some long talks and at some point say... You know, if there's anything on your mind, I am right here, and whatever is going on with you, I will never judge you, and I will always love you. And you can talk to me about anything, and anything you do say to me will always be entrusted with me. Um, and then see what happens. And then if nothing comes out of that, and you still feel like she's lashing out and is desperate to let talk, her work through it, let then no. Then I would I would say I would say to her just to let you know I do, I do know.
1: God, I'm really torn on it. I'm not sure I'm in your. I'm not sure I'm in your camp. I don't know if it's going to make her feel any better. I'm so sorry. We're normally united. In I know. Our, in our replies to these questions, to be honest the answer to this is that it's really tricky there is mm. there is no right or wrong
2: and also way we to we it. keep speculating on what sort of person she is is she someone who might know and be and but pretending she doesn't know that you all know only you know what personality she has so only you you know exactly yeah how she'll i mean i think you things. know
1: inherently i definitely have friends who i know like to talk and talk about their problems and their emotions and i have other friends who really don't and me bringing it up would only make them feel awkward so I suppose all you can do is try and talk about it amongst each other at a minimum. Because that, that's very important, it's, it's I would say. Not, it's not your role. I know, tempting as it is when you're worried about a friend to all gather and talk about it, but that is... Everyone's worst nightmare. And
2: and as Pandora said, I think if you feel like you can't bring it up with her because that would be so damaging and humiliating, then and just be gentle. Her, if you can't, just be gentle. Just be just gentle and understanding with her, and also like actively shut down conversations where people are talking about it. And and that's what yeah. you can do on behalf of your friend. You can say we are not talking about this anymore. If she doesn't know, we know about it. That's yeah. a powerful thing you can do. I think.
1: Good luck to her. Yeah. And good to luck all to all of you yeah. around her trying to support her in the best way you can thank you to snk for letting us use your studio today you can follow the hi Low on twitter at the Hilo show you can email us the hi show at gmail.com sorry we cannot reply to all emails but everything will get right and we hope you enjoyed our first ever author special with rennie edo lodge Bye bye yeah.